This is the show that brings to the forefront newsmakers, entertainers, and those making a difference in our lives and in our world. Each week is a new adventure with topics ranging from the most serious and cutting edge to the most lighthearted and entertaining. This is Taking Care of Business with Richard Solomon. Greetings, everyone. This is Richard Solomon, Taking Care of Business, and I have a very special guest for the business folk out there. This is Fred Esposito. And Fred is a frequent speaker, and I met him at a continuing legal education at the Nassau County Bar Association, and I was wowed by what he had, because when I looked at Wikipedia under billing, his picture was there. It was amazing. So, you know, so welcome to the show, and we have lots and lots of questions out there. Just by way of, uh, of background, he is a certified legal manager. What is that exactly? Because I'm a lawyer, and I've never heard of that. Um, well, a certified legal manager is a designation that's been around almost about 20 years. Uh, it was started by the Association of Legal Administrators. Uh, it basically is a credential that um, is not an easy one to attain. You have to uh, meet a mastery of certain uh, core mastery of skill sets such as knowledge, skills, and abilities, and they call them KSAs. And you have to be able to masterfully cover all of those competencies and apply them to your day-to-day operation. And by the time you reach those, those, those uh, levels of proficiency, you are supposed to be able to manage a firm of roughly 30, 30 attorneys or more. So it is basically a competency that basically differentiates you from your peers because there are uh, requirements, just as there is for attorneys, for continuing legal education. On the management side, you have to uh, cover areas such as financial management, human resources, legal industry, um, operation manager, you know, management, communications, legal writing, and so forth. So there's so many different areas that we have to stay proficient in. In fact, uh, you know, just as a background story on the certification, I attained my certification in 2006, and then in 2010, I actually joined the certification committee, which basically wrote the examinations for the for the for my peers and I was a member of that committee for about six years serving as chair of the committee for the last three so it's I definitely not only went through the process of sitting for the exam and taking the exam and then I actually got to the point where I was actually writing questions for the exam now what's fascinating is that I think one of the greatest weaknesses of lawyers is the lack of management skills because you see that you know lawyers really spend so much time you know running to court and and engaged in the transactions of law whatever the field is whether it's matrimonial or family or whatever it is but they're busy processing the work and and the management of the firm always takes a second seat to that and then i guess billing kind of almost comes third and i think that's what we need to sort of talk about today a little bit I, I think you're right. I think, you know, one of the things I think that's come about in the last few years, especially in some of the law schools, and I know Albany Law School is is working with this a little bit, is they're creating these law firm labs, if you will, where they're actually starting to teach practice management in law school. <clears throat> so while you're learning all of your skills and you're learning all your legal skills and you're specializing in different areas and practices of law, there are different business sides to any solo practitioner or if you're even joining a larger firm uh, where some folks really are great lawyers, but they're not always great managers and they're not always good business folks. And 
I think it's there's so much more heightened awareness for that now, especially what's happened in the last several years with the crash in 2008. Um, I think there were a lot of things. There was a major ripple effect from that, which I think really impacted the profession overall. And I think it put more of a spotlight on the need to be more in tune to the business of law um, and alongside with the practice of law. And I think that that has really been the mantra for the last few years, uh, especially in the economic times that we've experienced. As you probably well know, Richard, I mean, demand is down. So there's, you know, competition for business, business development, client development. Uh, those are all back to the forefront. And that all now works hand in hand with the business side and the practice management side of the law firm. And that's no different really from rock bands, you know, <laughs> and architects, engineers, accountant firms. Uh, you know, I guess, you know, I'm fortunate enough to be, you know, associated with a lot of rock music and rock music, either venues or promoters or whatever. And, you know, I guess a long time ago, the business dynamics were very different. You know, you just created amazing music and things followed. And now you can create all the great music you want, but unless you have a, a, a management skill set to get the social media out there, to copyright your music, to get performance, maybe to get your uh, performances either in video games or on television or other things, you know, or commercials, uh, it's just it's a, the game is very different and it's, it's much more challenging and it's harder. I think it's much harder now for all the business people out there to start businesses, stay in business and sustain them and grow them. Well, I honestly think that, you know, it's funny you mentioned music because I know of uh, one group in particular that they were talking about the time they recorded their first song uh, to kind of expand their horizons and to get credibility in the, in, in, the, in the world out there of music. And what happened was they picked up this one line from a, from a poem that they thought was terrific and they used it in the song and they said, well, this is not going to be a big deal. Well, they did it and the song was successful and then they turned around and got sued. <laughs> so, you know... So, and what's worse is they got sued in French because it was a French song. So they got sued in France. So it was, um, you know, just that that business parallel. You know, you know, you can go in with your eyes wide open or not, but at the end of the day, there's that business side that is going to be you're going to be accountable to. And I think it's no different in the law firm now or anybody who goes to law school and then becomes a very good lawyer. And, you know, the funny thing I find is, you know, some of the most brilliant attorneys that I've worked with in 28 years, um, you know, they're not, they're not very skilled on the business side in terms of managing their own firms. And, but, and I think that the focus now is on either the attorneys becoming more actively involved in understanding the business of their practices. Or they're hiring outside people to join their firms as they get larger to help them facilitate growth and to add more attorneys and to diversify their practice areas. So I think it all goes hand in hand now, and I think it's I think it's very, the business side is very integral to the success of an attorney these days. What, what are, I know this is a little off topic, but but we tend to do that on the show. What are the common mistakes that you see in management? You know, when you meet all the lawyers out there that you meet, what are, what are like the, the common problems or the common mistakes? Well, I think the common mistakes are 
everything that I've found in dealing with attorneys, and most of the attorneys I've worked with have been very accomplished attorneys. They're very successful, and they've done very well for themselves, and they're very good at what they do. But I find that there's always everything is based on instinct, and everything is based on a hunch. And I find that to be the case, especially when dealing with, um, if, you're, if you're a plaintiff's attorney, for example, and you sit there, and there are some attorneys who can sit there, weigh out the case, and decide whether they're going to take it, and they can tell you exactly what that case is going to be worth at the end. And sure enough, give it 18 months or whatever the case may be from start to finish, and they're usually right on. But then there are those who <clears throat> can sit there and say, well, you know, this is, good. this is a litigation matter. I think it's probably... You know, it's going to maybe run about fifty thousand dollars. You know, let's get a small retainer. Let's get like let's get like ten thousand dollars as a retainer, and we'll start. Well, then the other side comes forward and says to you, "Well, we want to schedule one hundred and five depositions." So to start, (laughs) yeah, to start. So it's like, whoops, you know, it's one of those. So how do you how do you save yourself from that? You know, so sometimes I think the gut instinct, while it may work in the court courtroom and it may work in a deposition it's not always going to work on the business side of the fence because you have to be very you have to look at cases differently you have to understand that with everything you do there's going to be a cause and effect and depending on how successful and how efficient you can be while at the same time promoting value i think it's that's the real challenge for an attorney today is you want to get paid for your services. You want to record your time. You want to keep an accurate assessment because really your time is your only inventory. It's what you get paid for and you want to bill it and you want to feel comfortable that you are, you have the confidence in your work. The value proposition comes to play at that point and you can bill for that work and then collect on that work. And I think that sometimes that part of it falls short with some attorneys. They're brilliant attorneys, and they can still come up to me and say, you know, I build, I'm going to bill about a million dollars this year, but I'm going to collect maybe 300000 Yeah, so, yeah, so you're better off just working for the 300000 know. More, Yes, and, you know, but it doesn't have to be that way. Well, but, you know, that's just the thing. It doesn't have to be that way. I read, I read somewhere, it may have been at a CLA, continuing legal education class, that if you synthesize all the hours that were written off nationwide, it comes down to $40,000 per attorney in the United States of America. And I can actually see that because you do a lot of freebies. You do, you know, I see, I, I have this, the effect called the freight train effect where, you know, a litigation sort of gets out from underneath you. You know, the case starts and all of a sudden there's, a lot of activity. There's an injunction. There's a court hearing. Everybody's running around. Uh, they want motions filed. They want opposition papers. They want a subsequent ap- appearance. Then they want to mediate it. And in the course of 30 days, let's let's say you know uh, the bill is twelve thousand. Well, the client wasn't prepared for the sticker shock uh, of, of of twelve thousand because it's like, wait a second, we just spent twelve thousand. It's only the first month, and it's like, well. Yeah, it's because, you know, there was a lot of activity and you asked for drastic relief and on an expedited basis. And then, and then, boy, if you have to get a bond or something like that to secure costs, uh, that's even more money. And I think even though clients want, you know, very, very effective litigation, I don't think they understand how much, you know, uh, you know, you know, you know, very aggressive litigation 
costs, especially because the court system itself is very inefficient. Well, I'm glad you said that, and I didn't. No, I can say it. Look, I'll say it very clearly. <laughs> there are many times where clients do not understand that you waited two hours for basically a 15-minute transaction. Yes. Um, and, or, and the other thing that the clients don't understand is what I call judge-free litigation. You know, you file a case, and cases commenced electronically, and then you have a preliminary conference, and in many places, there is a preliminary conference in which the lawyers just sit around and fill out a pre-printed form, and it's different everywhere, despite the fact that it says unified court system somewhere in the papers. <laughs> and then uh, you'll plot along, and then you'll go to a compliance conference, again, in many places without a judge, um, depending on the circumstances. But many places you go to a compliance conference part or a preliminary conference part, and you don't necessarily meet anybody who's going to really manage your case. Then maybe there's a motion. Sometimes there's a motion or whatever. And, and sometimes that motion is just done on submission. So the papers are just sent somewhere and then magically sometime later, and, and that later could be a long time, a response comes back. And that that's very troublesome to clients because they don't understand why nobody's looking at their case, that the case just moves along on its own. Um, and that creates a lot of cost because in my opinion, and I'll say this very clearly, uh, when the court system, like in the commercial division, you know, you meet people and you're in front of the judge and they, 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 they say, all right, do we need all these parties and do we need all these causes of action? And what's, what's the real problem here? And you can start thinning the herd out a little bit. That's when cases start to move uh, with a little bit of velocity, you know, and yeah. that costs money. Well, you know, it's funny. Based on what you were just saying, I can tell you, you probably moved my mind in about four or five <laughs> different directions of different things that we could touch on, one of which is there's, it brings up the whole idea of efficiency, client focus, and value. And I think that one of the things I think that comes up a lot is you talk about the write-offs. You know, you, you talk about, you know, the amount of time being, you know, the, the standard maybe being about 40000 per attorney. What's interesting about that is one of the points I make about write-offs is that I sometimes think that, you know, attorneys need to have a little more confidence in their abilities because I think a lot of time gets written off unnecessarily before the bill goes out the door. And this is all before the client sees anything. And I think what happens, and I tell, you know, there are some attorneys who are under the school of thought, well, you know, I have to discount my work 15 to 20% a month to get more work. And, you know, when I hear that, I think to myself, well, what's your value proposition? I mean, do you stand behind your work? Then bill it. Um, if you feel you need to discount your work and then send out the bill and then the client comes back to you again and then you end up cutting the bill and writing off part More. of the bill, <laughs> you know, when you add all of that up over time, you know, a quarter hour here, a quarter hour there, you know, it's funny, I talk to different groups, Richard, as you know, and we talk about this whole issue of write-offs and I'll, you know, sometimes what I'll do in, in sessions and I'll do this with partners too in meetings and I'll say to them, you know, let's say we have a 50 attorney firm and we're writing off, you know, a quarter hour a day per lawyer. You know, well, if you take and do the math for a quarter of an hour, multiply it by the number of attorneys in the firm and annualize that amount, you know, based on an average, let's say an effective billing rate of maybe 260 or 270, something along those lines, you could be losing out on about three, four $400,000 in potential billing. A year. And, 
And when you look at that, it's a cumulative effect. And the more lawyers you have involved, the more significant it can be. And what I do is each year I can see how much a firm can write off. And I'll look at their total write-offs for the year. And then what I do is I take that number and then I, I basically take the profit margin of the firm. So if the firm's profit margin is 40%, let's say for every $1,000 a firm collects, um, forty, you know, $400 if it goes into the profit bucket. Well, let's say, for example, you write off a $2,000 receivable. Well, under that profit margin, you know, over a course of time, the firm would have to generate another $5,000 in business to offset that $2,000 you just wrote off. And when you take that number and you take it through the full course and you divide it by the number of lawyers, the effective billing rates of the firm, I can sit there and say to a group of people, you're all going to have to work another 212 hours a year next year to make up for everything you wrote off the year before. Wow. And, you know, then the iPhones go down and people (laughs) start paying attention. And, you know, but, but that's real money. And when you think about that, you know, I, I thought about what you were saying, and, you know, the, the other issue here is the value proposition, which I strongly um, stand behind because I don't think an attorney has to write off 15 to 20% uh, per month of all their bills because, quite frankly, I've said this to firms before and I've said this to partners. It's okay to fire clients. I mean, if you feel that you can't get what you, you want to get for the work you're doing and what you're providing is a good service and there is value, um, I mean, I've seen clients who, you know, billing matters go through where they've, you know, I've seen a partner save a client half a million dollars in a 15-minute phone call, and then they try to bill it, and they say, oh, I can't bill all this, you know, when the reality is they can bill it because it had real value to the client. Um, and I think now, more so than ever compared to years ago, you know, there's much more pressure, not so much on the billing rates of what, we, what we're charging to clients, but I think it's more the focus is now on the cost it is to produce that hour. All right, hold, and, hold right there. Right? We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Rich Solomon, Fred Esposito. Keep it locked here. Hi, this is the great Sordini. You're listening to Richard Solomon on 88.1 FM WCWP. Welcome back. Richard Solomon taking care of business with Fred Esposito. And that was a lightning round. That was a lightning round of information. And this one, this, this second segment is going to go even faster. So before the break, we were talking about write-offs and the cost of write-offs and the cost of production. Yeah. Um, I, I'll, I'll give you my point of view uh, as, as an attorney who, you know, I remember learning that uh, when you said you could fire clients, I remember learning from uh, Professor David Austin at uh, Georgetown Law. He said, a lawyer is not a bus. A lawyer is a piano. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, bus has to take everybody because you're a common carrier. Whereas a piano, if you want to decide to make beautiful music or whatever, that's, you know, so that was his his analysis. A lawyer is not a bus. You're, You're a piano. Uh, and I learned that a long time ago. I guess it kind of stuck. Well, sometimes you have to clean the keys. Yes. Uh, but what I, what I also look at, I guess, and I think this goes to the mind of other lawyers too. When you generate a bill, you know, there's an art and a science to it because it really is that. And I hear what you're saying about the double deduction because when you said that in class, I took that as, no, he's right. Because uh, you, you don't want to be like a C corporation with taxation at two levels. Yeah. You, you, want, you want to be like an S-corp. You only want to be taxed once. <clears throat> but I look at bills and I say, 
if I were on the other side of this bill, how do I, how would I feel? And then part of me feels like, you know, I was in court for six hours and, you know, we waited around because the court wasn't ready. And that's the problem, you know, the inefficiencies of the court till you get there, till you wait around. You get there early because you don't want to be late. Uh, somebody may not take the bench until 11, even though they said 930. Um, and yes, it is a criticism of the court system. And for those who are listening from the court, you know, I, I'm sorry, but that's that's our experience because that gets translated into bills to clients. And then the clients want to know why it's so expensive. So I think the lawyers overcompensate by eating some of that time because um, they know, oh, you know, it took forever to take the. How many times, you know, you, you start at 930 and because the motion calendars or whatever are so congested that you're not heard until 1240. And then they start throwing everybody out of the courtroom at 1 o'clock for the lunch break. Or worse yet, they don't get to you and then they call you back at 2 and you had to wait from 1 to 2.15. Uh, and I think lawyers take that into account. Well, you know what it is, Richard? I think you said it. It's an art and a science. And I think this is where the art form comes in. I think billing is, an, is a great mechanism not only for communicating what you're doing for a client and to what degree and how detailed you want to get in your in your time descriptions and so on, which, you know, brings up a whole different topic, you know, along the lines of contemporaneous time entry. But we should we should get back to that. But to make my first point is I think it's very important to take advantage of the fact that billing not only communicates to clients what you're doing for them, it also creates an opportunity for you to build client relationships. And sometimes what I, I suggest to some folks, and I've done some consulting uh, situations where I've said to firms, it's okay to do an occasional no charge here and there. You know, you do a splash of a no charge. I know, for example, if you have an associate who's traveling and they get stuck, let's say, for example, they're going into Brooklyn and they get stuck in traffic and they're sitting out there. And of course, the associate writes all that time down and it sits there on the pre-bill and you see it. What I do in a case like that is I'll say to them, depending on the client, and again, there's no cookie-cutter approach. It all, it's client-specific. But what I'll say to them sometimes is for the travel time, cut the rate in half or show some of it as a no charge. Because I can tell you, no matter how much you bill a client, it could be in the four figures, could be five or six figures. I think what happens is when the clients get the bill, they remember when they see that there's four or five hours on a bill that was either reduced or was billed out at no charge. The clients do see value in that. I'm not suggesting go crazy, because you know some people I think get a little happy with the red pen, but I just think that it's important to use billing um, to communicate the value of what you've done for the client. And quite frankly, my feeling is if you have an entry, if you don't have a time entry that says that you're doing something for that client, um, you have to rethink it. Because I've seen things where I've seen on bills, because sometimes I review bills for certain lawyers, and I'll look at them and I'll see something like, well, posted to calendar or something to that effect. Well, I look at those things and they're more administrative in my mind. And quite frankly, I don't feel that, you know, sometimes it's fair to bill a client who's paying you six figures uh, for that kind of an entry. So what I'll do is I'll put that as a no charge. You know, I won't bill the client for that because there's no benefit to the client. When I'm looking at the bill on the other side, as you suggest, I'm looking at that and I'm saying to myself, how did that benefit me? So there are ways to make, to communicate the value while at the same time, you know, looking through the bill and making some adjustments here and there 
to tell your story, but at the same time, give the client a little bit of a break as you're going through. Because I can tell you that I think that does wonders for client relations. Uh, I think it's also good. It also alleviates the need. You'll find you'll be writing less and less time off over time unless you have a time management issue, which is a whole different discussion. But I think you should use the opportunity to communicate with your client, but also to use it as an opportunity to enhance relations. And there's little things you can do that don't cost a lot at the end of the day, but they do benefit and the client does pick up on it. Another thing that I find that is you know, really good about billing that, you should, that folks should take advantage of is setting the proper expectation. And that should really happen at intake. When you're taking on a new matter, I think, you know, that's what we have these retainer letters for, you know. And, uh, you know, of course, the, the rules of professional conduct dictate how we're supposed to and when to apply and when to use an engagement letter with a client. But I think the engagement letter is a terrific tool not only to talk about what you're going to do for the client, but it also sets the expectations that the firm or the attorney has with regard to billing and when they expect to be paid. Uh, you talk about the court system and you talk about litigation, you talk about the expense. In the last few years, Richard, you I can certainly appreciate this, litigation support has become the biggest price ticket out there for most litigation matters. Yep. And you need it. It's not like you can function without it now. And litigation support can be a very expensive proposition to a client and to, a, to an attorney because if attorneys fronting those costs on a litigation matter, which some do, that becomes a very significant outlay of cash for a solo practitioner. Um, or you have to have something in your retainer letter that addresses those kind of expenses. So there's a lot of things you, you can think about and you put them in the retainer letter See, with the client. I, I, I agree and I disagree. I think that the retainer letter is too, too little because what I usually do now after all these years of practice is I actually sit people down and I explain to them the menus of what depositions cost, what, you know, every, you know that I'm not the bank. That uh, they're going to get a call um, and they're going to have to pay the court reporter. They're going to have to pay the index number uh, by credit card when I call them and I'm, you know, filing something. Uh, and I really sit down with them and, I, and I'll say to them, it, it's very different now. Uh, and I'll say, look, I've seen the movie. I can tell you how it's going to play. And, it, you know, litigation to some extent is a war of attrition. It, it's a battle of resources. And no matter how efficient each side is, it's still time consuming. It's loss of their time that's diverted from, you know, I guess creative, productive things. Uh, how much of it is an expression of anger? How much do you want to pay for the anger? Uh, you know, it's also responsibility shifting. There's a lot of psychology that underlies all these legal issues. Uh, you know, there's, you know, you, you didn't make good hiring decisions. You, you, you trusted someone. You didn't pay, paperwork the thing right. You didn't want to spend the money to paperwork the thing right the first time. And now everybody's spending more money to, deal with either ambiguities or uh, I'm not paying for that, you know, or that's not my problem kind of stuff. And I find that there's a lot of psychology that happens in that first meeting. And I try to really set the expectations very clearly that, you know, is it worth, is this worth it? Because remember when you said about, um, you know, firing clients, yeah. I actually kind of do that sort of in the beginning, which is, 
this concert is going to be very expensive and the seats aren't that good. It's kind of, you're going to, you know, you're going to come out with ringing ears and yes. the view's right not that good. Speakers. And then you're going to say, I really thought it was going to be a much better experience. And I'm like, <laughs> it's not. And depending on what court it is, you can kind of give the idea of what the flow of the court is, the flavor of the court, necessarily the particular judge, but district court, civil court, Supreme Court, you know, everything's different. Environmental control board, every uh, traffic court, criminal court, they're all different. They have different paces and uh, modalities. And, you know, I do truck summonses and, you know, someone walking with 19 tickets and I'll say, okay, you got 19 tickets and one's a misdemeanor. You know that this is not going to be a hundred dollars, right? <laughs> you know? Right, and you not know going that, away, right? Yeah, you know, and all the magic that we can do, you know that there's going to be a fine, right? There's going to be a fine that you have to pay, uh, and you have to you have to really explain that. And it's just, well, Richard, I think what you're doing is actually one of the things that I would highly suggest doing is that you're communicating with the client, you're sitting them down, you're going through the whole process, and I like to I, I like to cover that in the intake process. When you're bringing in the client and you're talking about the expectations, what they should expect, um, how the movie's going to play, as you put it. But I think it's also important to do that while also memorializing the conversation to some extent so that the client understands the responsibilities. Because as you well know, um, God forbid if it ever gets to a point where you don't get paid, and then there's the question of collections and how do we approach this, um, you know, I find that it is very important to spell these things out. But what I find is the most important piece, aside from the billing and collections piece, and I always emphasize this, is to make sure that the scope of representation is very clear. Not so much talking about what you're going to do, but what you're not going yeah, to do. Yes. And I find that that sometimes falls short, and I have seen cases where Firms have initiated collection suits, and then, of course, you can expect the countersuit right after that. And well, that's happens, always in the playbook. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know people don't. It's like the bad seats. Yeah. You know, you're going to walk away with either death or something's going to happen. But the point is, you sue a client for fees. There's going to be a counter, and what happens then is then you become it vulnerable and then they look at you they go through your engagement letter and they or you know they go through all the documentation and they say well you don't say in your letter that you're not going to do this um so it has to be very clear before you even get to that point but i think what you do sitting down with the client and going through play by play what to expect i think that's terrific and i think it's all about the communication and i think that the billing that you produce each month as this engagement proceeds more or less solidifies that communication from the beginning. So there's no real surprises. And what I always tell people is don't bill a client $3,000 a month and then send them a bill for $20,000. Call the client. Tell them what's going on. Explain why the bill is going to be different this month. And then follow it up with the bill with a small cover letter saying, you know, as we discussed, if you have any questions, give me a call. You know, keep the communication open. And I find that if clients... If the expectations are set and if clients are clear on what's going on, they may not like it, it but they will work with you, um, especially if they, they find value in the work that you're in the services that you're providing. Because I don't think unless a client deliberately intended not to pay you, I think most clients are going to do their level best to take care of the lawyer, especially if you know the result was perceived as a positive one. I mean, would you disagree or di- agree with that? 
Both. Um, I've, I, you notice, I guess I've seen it all. I've seen, you know, people happy to pay when they win. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, and this again, a criticism of the judicial system, and I'm sorry. <laughs> But sometimes you get some very bad decisions out there. You get You're not some, running for office or anything anytime nah, soon, nah, are you? <laughs> no. Good. <laughs> and, and there are some really bad decisions out there. And you look at it. And sometimes it's not even close. Um, I won't go into any specific examples. But there, there, there are sometimes when it, it, you may just have to like, you know, they dismiss a case for the oddest reason. And it may just be easier to refile. But then the lawyer kind of feels... Uh, you know, they almost take it on the chin yeah. because of really bad results. And, and, and not because you told the client, Hey, you know, and I've told clients, look, this is, this is thin. I'm not sure you really want to go this route or let's just try to settle it or let's try to minimize the cost and the, and the end result, you know, we're in a pickle. Let's really not make it worse than it is. But then there's other times when you have something very simple, uh, very straightforward. I'll give the example. I had a case where, um, I had some pro se's, pro, meaning people who represent themselves, made a motion to dismiss, and the court just dismissed it. And they said, "They said, well, we weren't served." And I'm like, uh, "You were supposed to have a hearing to see whether or not they were served, called the Travers hearing." But the court dismissed it. Now, the appeal of that would have been too long and too expensive, yeah. so I had to refile. But it was a terrible decision. It was an absolute. And then I did a motion for re-argument, and the court just said, "No, no, we were really right." And I'm like, "There was just no point." That was a bad decision. And when you talk to a lot of lawyers and you ask them their angst about billing issues, a lot of it comes from the dynamics of the litigation and court process. Uh, or, and then their hands are tied. Yeah. And also, you know, you hear from like the real estate attorneys, you know, deals fall through and, you know, something with the bank or the bank didn't approve something or there was some kind of thing that showed up in the title that nobody – was expecting, and of course, then the lawyers take a hit on that. Yeah. So, so the lawyers, because of the way clients are, and I guess their mindset, they're very quick to blame lawyers for all kinds of things. Yeah. So the lawyers become defensive, and they become defensive in their billing, and then what they do is they either cut things or eliminate things or you know write them off because of because of that kind of pressure. And they but just, I think Richard, you, I think you. It goes with the territory that on on some cases you're going to have to do that. Right, right. Exactly. Now, I mean, no question about it. I think that's just the cost of doing business sometimes. Um, you know, especially if this is a, a long-standing client and, you know, you've been representing this client on different transactions for many years, you know, there's always going to be that one case you're going to take a hit, but you also know that down the road you have an opportunity to, you know, to redeem that situation either with that client or with a referral that you get from that client. 100%. We have a minute, believe it or not, we only have a minute left in this segment. Uh, there definitely is, in my opinion, a difference between repeat clients and what we call, you know, the, the one-time clients. You know, you know, sometimes you come in when someone has like a criminal problem or this or that. You don't really, you don't really expect repeat business uh, from that. Uh, but that's why, you know, the criminal lawyers try to get all their money up front. But again, you know, still things pop up afterwards or there's, like you said, litigation support. And that becomes a really big, a big area as well. Uh, in fact, when we come back, it's amazing how fast this is. I'll tell a great war story about litigation support and Facebook that even Fred will chuckle at. <laughs> all right. So Rich Solomon, Fred Esposito. Fred is, when, when it comes to billing and, and, 
but small firm uh, practice management, he is really the guru. He really is. And, and I'm saying it because I know that he's modest, and, and, but he's really a great expert. And he's a great speaker. And by the way, if, if people want to get in touch with you, is there a way to get in touch with you? Sure. Uh, they can reach me on my email. And uh, if you want, I'll share that. Yeah, please, yeah. Sure. They can reach me at fred.esposito0511 at gmail.com. All right. So with that, we'll be back right after this quick break. Keep it locked in. Hey, this is Jeff Matson, the Dark Star Orchestra, and you're listening to Richard Solomon on WCWP 88.1 FM. Richard Solomon, Fred Esposito, welcome you back to Taking Care of Business. All right, so we're talking about uh, small firms, billing, management, really wild stuff. And it's important for all the small business people out there who are in the service-oriented billing part of the world. So one of the things that we were talking about that, for lawyers at least, they have uh, litigation support as expenses. That's court reporters, process servers, uh, uh, private detectives. I mean, there's all kinds of expenses, uh, digital forensic evidence. So I'm going to tell Fred a quick story that uh, I think he'll like. So I have a case right now going on. I won't mention any names. But the opponent said, you know, I work for this company seven days a week, uh, 12 hours a day, 52 weeks a year, no time off, no this, no that. Well, on Facebook – he said that he was somewhere else. <laughs> and basically, when you when you say that you're somewhere else, your phone kind of GPSs you from there. And it says, hey, I'm, I'm here. Like when you go to a concert at Jones Beach and it says, hey, I just checked in at Jones Beach Theater. Well, this guy did it and it was like maybe uh, the other side of the, the world. So – uh, I had so what happened was I, I called up my forensic guys and I said you won't believe this you got to you got to grab this because I know it's going to be deleted but there's a post just get me everything off this guy's Facebook page just get me everything because I need this post but make sure you get this post and everything around it we capture the whole thing a little time goes by the the really good juicy post is deleted and then of course when we go to federal court I unleashed it and then <laughs> there's a hell fury <laughs> but. But, you know, that was an expense. But I called up the client and said, I don't care. And I said it was really funny. I said, I don't care how much we have to spend, but I want forensic guys with degrees who can establish the chain of custody, the authenticity, um, come to court and testify with confidence that these are, you know, well-qualified custodians of digital information with all the right pedigrees and degrees so that when we say this was the post and it was deleted – that someone will pass that as an authentic piece of evidence. So whatever we have to pay, we're paying. And the client's like, ah, yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's what we did. So I guess you'll have to listen to a future show to see how the evidence shakes out. Well, you know, I got to tell you, Richard, it's, you, it's funny you touch on that because now elect, everything is electronic, you know, electronic documentation, uh, retention of documents. It's not just paper anymore. It's electronic. It's social media. It's all the, you know, you bring in all these forensic people, you, you bring in all these litigation support companies that store data, uh, that goes through a, 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 you know, like the, the adversaries databases. And it could be, you know, I can't even imagine how much data is out there. And you're going and sifting through it and you're analyzing it and you're preparing to go to trial and everything else. And all this time the meter's running and it can be a very expensive proposition. And depending on how the firm decides to structure those kinds of arrangements, 
you know, the attorney could be advancing the cost, which is not something that I would recommend doing. I always recommend creating relationships with the client and the lit support service, like you suggested earlier with the court reporter bills or getting the, you know, RJI numbers and things, you get a credit card. I think that those are the kinds of things law firms should, small businesses should be considering doing, especially if they have significant out-of-pockets in order to manage these cases and to keep them moving. And I sometimes think you need to have the client be accountable for that side of it uh, in order to keep things moving. Because sometimes firms, if you're a solo practitioner, sometimes the expenses can be exorbitant. And it's not always something that the firm can take on. Look, all you have to do is buy, by the way, for people out there, an index number is $210. Yes. And that's what starts a case on the Supreme Court level, $45 on the uh, lower court level. But that, you know, in the future, this may change. So, you know, that's what it is as of the date of this recording. You, but, you but buy. Litigation in general is just an expensive proposition, not the lawyer's time alone, but just everything else that goes with it. Right. But let's say you're the lawyer, right? Just so you're saying the cost. You buy 10 index numbers. Well, all of a sudden, you just popped out $2,000. Yeah. And, well, you, then you got to get it back. And then you're you're the bank. And then you have to worry about the float. And then yeah. people are like, ah, oh, you know, I'm a little tight this month. Or it's a bad month. Or somebody needed surgery. Or eh, we're going through some tough times. And I'm like, yeah, well, I'll be, <laughs> I'm going through a lot of tough times. And all the clients are telling me that uh, they're having tough times, too. And then that becomes you become the bank. And then you become squeezed. And that's the problem. And, Nobody realizes how much out of pocket there really is because it's the car, the tolls, the, 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 the parking, you know, all that stuff. And you're not running around with clients' credit cards um, with you, but just, the, just the, the general movement around of going places and doing things incurs costs. And then there's the cost of the you know, litigation or transactions or hiring title companies, title closers, uh, bail. You know, I mean, just – Everything. There's a cost. You, know, you mentioned what part of the law you are or the business you're in, like, you know, expediting fees or department building filing fees or, you know, registration fees and license fees. That, that, the, the checks are always being written on the app. And yet you still need all those deposit slips, you know, coming in faster. Well, I mean, one of the things you had mentioned before, which I think is very true, is when you're involved in a case like that, you're in. I mean, the law, you know, the lawyer is in and you basically are in some cases fronting those costs. Sometimes if the client can't keep up, you know, in order to keep the case moving through the system, as you had said before, someone's going to have to front that money to keep the case going because it's not always so easy to get out of the case. Right. And some things take a life of their own. All right. Yeah. So let's, let's do a little bit of a lightning round because uh, boy, this is a fast show. Uh, should you bill monthly or more often, if the if the need dictates. I say bill more often. What about the, you know, most firms figure, all right, 30 days. We bill every 30 days. You know, we go through the whole drill. We, we start sending reminders saying we're closing the month on Friday. We're closing the month on Friday. And we're getting the bills out. And we want them all out by the second week of the month. Well, sometimes that, I, I like to think of it as, you can do that as a regular practice, as a best practice, but I also think that if you have a situation where you've just got a fantastic result for a client and the client is on cloud nine and the client has a pen in their hand, you send a bill the next day. You get all the time in and you send a bill that day. And I'll tell you, nine out of ten times the client's going to write the check because they're thrilled. How do you feel about um, electronic payments, credit cards, um 
you know, these new uh, uh, square up or. I think they're great. In fact, you know, it's funny, you know, for some firms, it's, an, it's it can be a significant expense, you know, in terms of the merchant fees and everything on credit cards. But I've got to tell you, I think they're, they're fast becoming um, basically a cost of doing business. It's like legal research. You know, you're online, you're working with Lexus or Westlaw or any of the other search, you know, pieces that are out there that are available. It's now a cost of doing business. Most institutional clients or most people you're representing won't pay for those things. But now you have some costs that you're incurring in order to generate and to keep a flow of business. But I also think that it's okay um, in some cases to take credit cards. One of the things I've noticed some small practitioners are doing, and I think QuickBooks has done a great job with this, is they're actually generating their bills right from QuickBooks. They're sending their bills out electronically, and their clients are paying the bills right on the spot. So that's 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 an improvement, you know, from years ago. It really most is. definitely, but it's you know it's but it's definitely something that's out there. And people, some firms, I've seen a couple of practitioners I know that are uh, that are in the healthcare arena um, that are doing just that. And they're working with QuickBooks. And because we handle some third part, my firm handles some third party work from this firm, we get some of their invoices that we pass on to our clients. And it's just amazing how they come in electronically. We open the bill, it opens up into a PDF. We have the ability to pay the bill right on the spot. And then they get a notification on the other end telling them that the client, client X paid their bill. And that money goes right into their bank account. So how how do, how do we deal? I mean to interrupt. How do we deal with the people who get the bills, and they just they just don't want to pay it. They just eh, you know. It, uh, I I was with a, a client, and we saw, and he was suing this guy, and uh, the guy's coming out of the parking lot, and he's got a, a you know convertible car, and he's smoking a cigar, and he's got a Super Bowl jacket on, and the client says to me, "Will you get load of this?" And I said, "I said to the client." It's not that he doesn't have money. He doesn't have money for you. Right. You're, you're 27 <laughs> in the top 10. Exactly. Great. Great line. Great line. How do you deal with those people? You know, it's, it, there's no easy answer to that. But I can tell you that, you know, the collection process, I think most people, there's some misconceptions about it. One of which is I think there's an, there's an automatic assumption that it can be a very confrontational process. And it doesn't have to be. Um, I think, you know, again, I, I'm, I'm one of these folks who still believes in the, the, the positive points of communication. But I think that as business owners, we have to take some precautions, you know, such as the retainers and so on. Some people take like an evergreen retainer, if you will. They'll take a retainer and put it on the side till the end of the engagement so they can ensure that they're going to be paid at least to some extent when everything's said and done. But it's never an easy, t- an easy task. I mean, you can call the client, you can take payment promises and so on. But then it gets to the point where some firms will sit there and say, okay, you know, some clients, I knew a, cl- a firm once where they were telling me that they had a, you know, a $20,000 balance and the client was sending $50 a month. But the client was sending $50 a month regularly and never failed, which is a great thing, but we'll all be dead and buried in- before we get paid. Hence the vitamin, the vitamin subscription. <laughs> yes, you know. So it's, it's so. But one, I I inherited one of those in another firm years ago, and what I did was I reached out to the client and I said to them, you know, if you send me a check for X at this point, I'll write off the difference. And the client came up with the money and wrote the check. Now, by then, to me, that's that's found money. That's found money at that point, and because it's money you wouldn't have collected otherwise. 
you know, people will say, oh, it's too old. Why worry about it? Well, you know, quite frankly, if you can get something on it at the end of the day, you might as well do it because it's, it's, it's found money at that point. But it's a very difficult task to have to deal with a client about money. And you don't want to get into whole, you know, some firms before they even take cases, they'll do background checks. They'll, they'll run Durad Street on businesses and so on, you know, just to check their financial due diligence before they'll take on certain clients. Um, but I mean, I think there has to be some street smart here in terms of how you work with clients with money. Um, but there are going to be those that, like I said, unless they had no intention of paying you, and believe me, you know as well as I do, Richard, there are some clients out there who are working with three or four different law firms. They bounce around. Oh, yes. Uh, because they don't pay one firm, so they go to another firm. You know, And a lot of firms have gotten burned because of those types of situations because they bounce around. But I, you know, the, I guess the short answer is you have to try and work with the clients to get something. But I think to backpedal it just a little further back, I would say that in the beginning, the expectation with the client has to be made that you expect to be paid, especially if it's a new client and you expect to be paid. And if you tell the client the payments are due upon receipt of the bill, then within 10 days or 15 days after that bill goes out and you know the client has it in their hands by then, you start following up. And you basically say to them, listen, we reserve the right that if you don't pay, you know, the firm will, you know, we will take steps to withdraw. And again, it's case by case, as you well know. You can't do that in every situation because sometimes it's not your say. You have to let the court. <laughs> sometimes decide. the court says, hey, you're, you're in it. <laughs> the court will say you're in it whether you want to be or not. And then you got to lick your wounds and just move forward. But but every firm will try to get out before they before they get buried. But you know, one of the things you mentioned earlier about bills getting out of control and so on, and and I think that and I meant to comment on this before, and I think it's very important. You know, when you have these large matters where you have six or seven people working on the same matter, and you've got people running all over the place, but then you see the bills come out, and the bills, as you say, are like ten thousand dollars, and it's because you got all these people doing different things. And I think you know the lesson to be learned from that for attorneys is that this is where the efficiency piece comes in and the client focus and, you know, being able to effectively communicate what's going on in the bills and streamlining the bills to make sure that, you know, they look clean and that everybody's time is effectively being managed. And I think sometimes those issues, when they go unattended, can manifest in a resistance to pay bills um, because sometimes it looks like everybody's out of control. And the client is looking at the bill and they're trying to, they're trying to figure out, what am I getting out of this? You know, what, where's the, what's the benefit? All I know is I'm getting a bill every month and I'm not seeing this move fast enough. And as you said, sometimes the courts dictate, you know, how that's going to proceed. But I think sometimes it, it comes right down to the communication with the client and just staying in touch and staying in tune. When a client calls you, you don't wait three days to return the phone call. You call the client back right away. Well, one of the secrets I actually use is I actually drag my clients to almost every event, the preliminary conferences, compliance conference. I actually want them to see everything. Um, That's great if you can get them there. Well, when they say they don't, I just say, look, I really, I really want you to see. I want the court to know that you care. I want the yeah. adversary to know that you're committed and engaged. And, I, and you need to know what I'm going through. So when you see the bill, I don't want to hear you know, you complaining about it. Because, you know, if, you know, about, well, the, the, the schedule wasn't right. Or you didn't, you know, this, you know, because people, you know, pe people to be patient and strategize is 
kind of getting all lost. People becoming impatient, and they have higher levels of frustration intolerance. Uh, you know, they just want what they want. They want it now because in other worlds outside of the court system, you know, you want food. It's 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 zapped and it's there in front of yeah. you. You know, yeah, you want food. You want a book. It's clicked, and uh, you know the. the uh, the guy in the truck <laughs> drops it off tomorrow. And, you know, if you pay for uh, something, you know, it, it could be even digitally downloaded. So you don't even need to wait for the book. Uh, you can you know, get the book, the, the music, whatever, uh, streamed. So people's expectations about how service works in some contexts corrupts their understanding of how it works in taxes, accounting, law, engineering, you know, all these other things. And I think that's a big problem. So that's what I, I try agree. to agree, and I and I do believe it comes down to expectations on both sides. Uh, you know, it's funny you just described basically the Amazon Prime of litigation. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so yes. it's, I wasn't used yet, but yes, yes, exactly. But you know, it's not as perfect or regimented as the CPA world. You know, the professional service firms that you know that are that have regimented schedules in terms of when certain things get done. The IRS say it's so, not us. And and so forth, but then when you get into the you know the the legal profession, it's you know it's more or less organized chaos, and you know you're at the whim sometimes, you, and some things are beyond your control, and so of course client frustration levels are rising um, because that instant gratification piece is not there, and but yet at the same time they're still getting billed for services for your time. And that's why I think it's a cumulative effect over the course of time with a, cl- a long-standing client. And I think when you have that relationship with certain clients, um, you know you're going to get paid. And sometimes it may not happen as quickly. I mean, I've, I've worked with lawyers who will say to me, this client pays on an average of, you know, 90 to 120 days, but they always pay me. Well, that's always, I've seen that to be true in some cases. But the question is, can the attorney support that? while also practicing law and handling other clients. You know, can they do that? Some, some attorneys can do that. Some cannot. So it's, you know, it, it really is a case-by-case situation. The last thing in the world you want to get into is a situation where you have to get to the point where you want to, you, you just get so fed up that you just decide to draft the complaint and send it to the client and say, this is what I'm filing on Friday if you don't pay me. Uh, we'll have to save that for another show. All right, Richard Solomon, we are out of time. Fred, thanks so much. We'd love to have you back. And uh, great information. Thank Richard, you so thank much. thank you very much. I enjoyed it very much. All right, we'll see everybody next week. 